there's a part of me that knew somehow at an early age that I didn't need to always follow the rules. When the stakes are really high, it's much harder for people to take risks. There's so many judges in classical music. You feel it so much when you're a student. You know, never mind that we're in the field of performing arts, so there are actual critics. I find that part of the classical music world sad. So highly competitive, and depending on how you define success, there are very few successful classical musicians in their own right, and they are the only person who will play or sing the way they do, and that matters. I did not identify early in life or in my school days as a leader. I identified as a musician and as an artist. It tapped into that rebel part of me that knew that one of the ways you make change is that you're in charge. It was just sort of the happy circumstance that my family actually really prioritized music. It's a miracle that I became a classical musician. I should not have. I was sort of done with conservatories because I just thought they were too elite, they were too exclusive, and they were leaving far too many interesting artists behind. I really thought, I am going to make these changes at Langis and then I'm going to have to leave. You know, when someone's against you, they're always going to spend more energy shouting that out to the world than you are. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And today I have the absolute pleasure of having a conversation with Karen Zord, who is the president of the Longley School of Music of Bard College. She's someone who I've been looking forward to talking with ever since a previous guest of ours, if you remember, Chatham Sullivan spoke highly of her. And afterwards, we got into another conversation around, around Karen. And the more he told me, I'm like, I need to get her on. I know she doesn't know who I am, but I want to talk to her because I am very, very fascinated about people who come into, I'm going to say, well-established spaces and causes a mindset shift that changes the whole game and just kind of flips everything on his head. And that's something that you have done. So thank you very much for saying yes and coming on the podcast, Karen. Well, I'm, I'm totally honored to be here and, you know, uh, we'll do my best to, to answer your questions and, and tell the story. You know, I've looked at your other guests. They're so impressive. So it's, it's quite an amazing uh, corner of the world you've got going here. I feel very privileged, so pay to be here today. Thank you very much. I'm going to go a bit way back with you, because one of the things I, when I was did some research and I read surprisingly about you was you are a classically trained pianist. And I'm always curious, have you always been into music when you were a young child, under 10 or is it something that your parents got you into yeah that's the question isn't it like that is the great question because it usually does sort of bifurcate in that way right either or like it was your idea and you were compelled to do it or it was someone else's idea and it caught you know it caught fire or whatever um or you know you're doing it you know there are plenty of artists and musicians i think who have the realization that 
the intrinsic motivation was it's not theirs right it was someone else's so but I have the happy um, I have the happy experience of that it really came from me um, and I would say that I I was lucky to come from a musical family where music was important so it wasn't like I had to go searching for it it was there you know we had a piano I mean it was an old beater piano um, but we had a piano in in you know one of the the living room a, a living room, and um, my parents you know we were not wealthy but they made sure that we all got piano lessons. Um, but far before I started piano lessons, I couldn't keep my hands off the piano. I just couldn't. I was just uh, it was like a magnet, and you know. You, you just wonder, like, where does that come from in a little kid, right? You know, it's like makes you think about past lives or, you know, what, what, whatever it is, you know, in, it, that makes a person, you know, the baby's born. And, and, and I just couldn't, I couldn't stop playing and I couldn't stop improvising, basically. So while I'm the youngest of five kids, you know, they were all reading music, you know, and... Um, taking their piano lessons and behaving. I was totally, one could say, misbehaving on the piano, <laughs> you know. But I heard all this music in my head. So that's the that's the beginning. It was, you know, it, it didn't happen by accident because the atmosphere was there, but I was really drawn to it. When you said you improvised a lot, did that always stay with you? Because I'm always, I always have this conversations around when you're younger, and you have this inner genius that we're all born with. And the older we get, we'll lose some of that because of society and culture and all that kind of stuff. Has that always stayed with you, that spirit of improvisation and just going what's in your mind? Yeah. Oh, God, that's another great question. Like, it stayed there, but it definitely got squashed. Mm. And, you know, that's a whole conversation around education, I would say, right? The squashing of the sparks that can be in a child if you're not careful. Um, and so what I would say is once I, it was time for me to start taking piano lessons, you know, I had a very traditional neighborhood piano teacher. You know, she, she had a good heart, you know, but she only knew one way to teach and everybody had to learn that way, right? So I had to kind of step into her world and behave and she really, it was the, the most important thing to her was that I learned how to read music and become literate. And, you know, I, if I look, you know, currently at that back at my, you know, past self, I think, well, that was sad, right? Because um, so what got kind of squashed, I would say, for a while was that spark of making things up, you know, that I think, you know, it can happen to a child when they're just learning to read, right? A child can make up a story and it's fantastic and it's amazing and then they start to learn to read words and suddenly they'll write a story that is only using the words they know how to spell, right? And so it's, it's, it's the same in music. So I, that got put on a shelf in some ways. I, I mean, honestly, there's a part of me that knew somehow at an early age that I didn't need to always follow the rules. Um, and I'm so grateful that was a part of my personality. You know, maybe it's being the youngest of five and getting to misbehave. I don't know. But I would still make up stuff at home, but I never let her know. 
that was that was like verboten you know like if she asked me I would you know I would just lie and say no 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 I only play the music that I can read <laughs> um and she just didn't she didn't know any better so it was much later than in my education when I started to um, so I was classically trained and, um, you know, did an undergraduate degree in piano performance. Um, but I also was interested in pedagogy, you know, I was interested in how people learn. So thankfully I worked on that as well and then did a master's degree in performance. And after I finished my, you know, any my, you know, degrees, um, I started to do work in the theater because I my husband is a theater director and and so he was working on some experimental pieces and he wanted some music for it so to begin with i did something that probably sounded more like uh, film scoring right using existing music to help to create an atmosphere or a counter atmosphere you know subtext but then i started i couldn't find what i wanted so then i went back to improvising and arranging and I loved it I felt so much creativity and freedom just kind of come pouring back into who I was who I am as an artist like that that really and it, I think it's kind of interesting because I think uh, if I sort of analyze it in retrospect because I was working in theater, that gave me permission to not have to follow the rules. You know, I think if someone had said, we want you to come and we want you to arrange and improvise on stage as a musician and be like the center of attention with that work, I'm not sure that would have gone very well for me. But because it was in someone else's world and I did have some skills that they needed, right? I was like, yeah, sure, you know, what could go wrong? And it felt like low stakes at the time, you know, um, which I think, you know, is sometimes when we are allowed to take risks. You know, when the, when the stakes are really high, um, it's much harder to, for people to take risks. And I, I know I carry that in my, in my role now and in my leadership. I know, I know that has a place. And I mean, one way that it is actualized is that I am such a fan of piloting programs, new things. And I just find that it, it works for me. It works for Longy where I am now. It's, I think, become a part of uh, how we think about innovation at times because when you tell someone it's a pilot you know nobody's getting their weapons out to shoot it down in the same way yeah. <laughs> as they it's an, exper it's an experiment it's it's an experiment <laughs> it's not saying it's permanent we're going to experiment we're going to uh, fuss around with it you know things that aren't working will will pay attention to, will let it evolve. And we may decide, and this is, you have to be honest, I think that's not working and it's gonna go away. Um, I, and I really love that kind of work. And I would say a certain amount of innovation and change that I have 
done or that the team that I work with has done has been born out of piloting things. And, and I, I'm not sure I realized it until I'm speaking to you now, but I do think it has to, it, there, there is some seed that was planted there where I saw that I could do things that were otherwise risky because it was, you know, outside of my, the area where I was going to be judged, you know, all, there's so many judges in classical music, right? And you, you feel it so much when you're a student. And I mean, I think you could talk to people who are at the top of the most elite classical performers who would still say they feel those judges, right? Because there's a certain amount of right and wrong, you know, did you play the right notes? Did you play the wrong notes? Did you remember everything is it in the right style you know because the style between how you play Bach and how you play Prokofiev is are really different you know and and so you know there's all kinds of opinions out there um you know never mind that we're in the field of performing arts right so there are actual you know critics so um you know so it can it, it I find that part of the classical music world um, sad. I find it sad. You know, I understand why it exists because when you're training to be a classical musician, you do need people to tell you, you know, that's not how you use the pedal when you play Scarlatti or Bach, you know, and that's more how you use the pedal when you play Beethoven. Um, there, there is this sort of sense of understanding um, what world you're in. But what it actually really does, I think, for so many people is, is it, it limits, it can limit their thinking. And it can actually, people can start to sound the same. Mm -hmm. And that it's, a, it's this needle that you're threading between helping a student understand what world they're in but also being able to develop their own individual voice. That is very interesting to me um, because I think, the, again, the classical music world is so highly competitive and depending on how you define success, you know, there are very few successful classical musicians, right? Because it's, did you get a seat in a world-class orchestra? Or do you make your living playing solo recitals in the great halls of the world? And um, I mean, that is such a small group of people who who actually are going to make that. That if you see if you define success that way, then it's a very very small world, and it's it's not that interesting. Um, but for me, what's really interesting is that anyone who decides or sees themselves as a musical artist um, is by definition unique and helping them find who they are and what they have to say and how their sound is different than anyone else instead of trying to mimic or come close to those artists that are held up on the pedestal I think you know my way of thinking is is no it's actually it's 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 the opposite yes take those people in and learn from them what you can but you know my job is really to help our students see that they are artists in their own right 
and they are the only you know person who will play or sing the way they do and that matters and that so that's the starting point i think with a student whether it's any kind of music really is making sure they understand who they are what they are what they bring to to the game um to their artistry really matters and to not let that get squashed that spirit I was listening to you share that which is very important and very powerful and it's tapping into the essence of I want to call it the, the individual to bring forth their own gifts and talents and their own different ways of thinking and to express that in their music rather than just doing what everyone else has done and interesting enough from the limited bits that I know about classical music, when I look at or read about someone like like Beethoven, for example, he was seen as revolutionary, like a rebel, and he rejected a lot of standard ways of working. So I listen to someone like that, who a lot of people emulate, but yet they're doing the exact opposite to, <laughs> to how he was. Just very much like what you've done with, with Longy, which seemed very, very radical, but it's tapping back into that essence. So why is that that in the world, in the classical world that exists where people are emulating someone that was radical, yet they're just copying him rather than doing what you've talked about? Yeah, it, it is absolutely right that, that um, he, I mean, Beethoven was a radical and he was an innovator. And, and then people who really put Beethoven at the center of their world as artists can fall into the trap of um trying to to be the culminator you know of be the best player of beethoven right which is different than who beethoven was and i i mean i do i do think you see sort of over history in in art you have these artists who were innovators who are never forgotten and they make their way into the history books in part because they broke all the rules and they started the next phase, right, that had yet to be named. Um, you see it in music, you see it in visual arts, um, you see it in dance. And then there are the people who were really the culminators. You know, so Beethoven was an innovator, Bach was a culminator. Like he sort of took all the rules that were set into place by his predecessors who might have been breaking the rules and then establishing a new set of rules, if that makes sense. And then he was the person who took that book of rules and like just took it to a height of artistry. Um, and I mean, obviously, people are not always just following rules or they're not probably making great art. I should say that. But it is it is something I think about um, with with educating musicians and young musicians is making sure that they understand that it's not the end game is not about getting it right. The end game, in my opinion, is about having something to say and, um, and saying it, you know, finding a way to say it or, or caring as much about your audience as you do about the work of art. Um, so thinking about who's coming to hear me who, who are these people and how can I welcome everyone and speak to everyone 
you know, both with what I say to the audience as well as what I play. Um, and that's, I think, also something that, that performers need to learn is, is to, while they're developing their artistry, they also have to say, but who is this for? It's not, it, yes, of course it's for me and it feeds me. Um, but you want to, you want to actually think about who might come to be in the space with me to partake in this. And my own feeling is how, how do we actually grow that audience? How do we make sure everyone feels welcomed, you know, in the concert hall, in the salon, in, you know, in, in the jazz club? And, you know, some, some genres of music are much better at this than others. And, and one could say, you know, classical's the worst, you know, although it's, it's getting better, but it, it's, it's similar to the music, you know, it sort of inherits the, what I was talking about with all these rules and whether you're playing, getting it right or wrong also happens to the audience. You know, people, you walk, you can walk into a concert hall and feel like, you know, I know the rules, you know, but even I feel oppressed by the rules, you know, at times. But you can look around and see, like, well, there, there's some people over there who, you know, they clapped at the wrong time, and people gave them the side eye, and they're never coming back. You know, like, you know, we've all been in that situation, right, where you're invited into something, and you realize, like, oh, I didn't know which fork to use, right? Or, what, how, you know, what, whatever that is. Everybody has it, you know, um, where you didn't know there were rules, and you, <clears throat> you learn it you know, sort of painfully in the moment. And the classical concert hall is very much like that. And so that's a place where we are very intentional at Longy about how we set up the concert hall and how we, and my goal really is to help the students really think about the audience as much as they're thinking about themselves and their own artistry because after all it's a it really is a dialogue like if you're a great performer but nobody wants to come hear you then what is that for um i want them to feel they can put it out to a broad public and that they can talk about either what motivates them or about the music in a way that anyone, anyone can understand it and can be invited in. And it, that's really the goal. It's not, you know, that you're dumbing it down for people who are in the art club. There has to be a way of talking about our music and presenting our music so that if you have a doctorate in, in some, you know, the field or you don't know anything, you feel that you've been spoken to and that's not easy but that's worth it that's totally worth it like finding that way there's so many things about art and music that are absolutely universal so if you can start there instead of starting with um using what i call would call insider language like i'm just allergic to this insider language there's so much terminology you know when you're an expert in a field right and you have your terminology classical music is just steeped in this and so whenever i'm working with a student about helping them think about how to engage an audience 
I'm constantly using the phrase everyday language, everyday language. Just someone should be able to sit in the audience and know nothing about any of these composers or your instrument or classical music. Uh, they showed up, invite them in, tell them something that helps them participate. That was a really long answer. I don't even remember the question. <laughs> you actually, you answered the question and you sparked a curiosity because everything you're describing right now about that openness, that inviting people in around thinking about the, the audience, about regardless of what part of the world you come from, whether you're classically trained or not, you need to come in and sit and understand, is a very revolutionary way of thinking, I would say. And I'm very curious, because you mentioned right at the start that you had this rebel nature. Between a younger 6-7 version of you to the going to theater version of you, which expressed those elements and that came out, that rebel nature must have still been there. So how were you actually expressing all that? Because I can't listen to you talk. I was like, there's no way you just buried that for all those years. It must have come out in one way, shape or form. Yeah, that's that's true. That's absolutely true. Like that, that, you know, nature doesn't go away, right? It's there and it will find its path. And I think also sometimes when you don't pay attention to that, you know, it can become more of a negative thing, right? So, um and I definitely had my, you know, bouts of, you know, less than positive energy about, you know, the system, <laughs> however you want to put it. Um, but I also wanted to, you know, I wanted to be educated and I wanted to succeed, right? So I wasn't, I didn't quit school, you know, I, I, I didn't do that. But um, yeah, I think it, uh, I think it it came out in in ways that I guess I would I would call it like a desire to make things better. Um, and so you know whether it was coming out in my artistry or not, I don't know. I do remember people saying I had a I had a voice, you know, so that I had I was playing things in a way that was didn't sound like. Um, everybody else. So I, I do think it was present there, but I think that rebel energy came out in my desire to make things better. So I would often, which I think is, is in part what led me to a leadership role. You know, I, I never, I did not identify early in life or, you know, in my school days as a leader at all. I identified as a musician and as an artist. But um, if I look back, I did um, gravitate toward sort of, I would say, grabbing things that I thought could be improved. Um, you know, so I would see that there was an opportunity and I would think like, oh, it just could be so much better um, that, you know, I would either ask or I would just start organizing something around it. So, I mean, the the first thing that really comes to mind for me was in some ways it was in my first it was my first real job i guess i would say i was done with graduate school and my so my husband was going to go to graduate school and this meant we were moving which meant that i needed to get a job <laughs> and um and so i got hired actually which was amazing at, as a sort of halftime pianist performer and halftime teacher 
at this wonderful community music school in Minneapolis, which is where we moved. And, you know, it was it was also wonderful to be in Minneapolis because it's actually I don't I don't know how familiar your listeners would be. This is in the upper Midwest, but it's like a very forward thinking, innovative, super supportive of the arts community. Um, and, and so that was also just an, an incredible environment to be in. So I got hired into this job and I was teaching um, halftime and I was performing halftime and there would be, you know, a series of recitals or a series of what were called master classes, right? Where the Minnesota Orchestra was next door and the great performers that were performing solos with them would come to our school to teach classes for the students. And so whenever there was a, a, a bit of a hole in someone organizing something, I just jumped in. And, you know, it's even possible in those days that I like the idea of being able to be around the great artists of the world, you know, sort of did something for my ego. So, um, so I was like, yeah, I'll organize the master classes, you know. Or the, the chair of the piano department went on maternity leave and, and nobody wanted the job, you know. It was like organizing 25 faculty and 700 students, you know. And, you know, I mean, I think there are plenty of people that will still say to me today, like, Karen, don't you miss the creativity of being on stage and, and you know, what goes with that? Like, they just have this duality about, you know, what they would call administrative work. You know, it's just like you're taking paper and moving it from one pile to the other, you know. But I never saw it that way. Like, I, I saw these opportunities. I was like, yeah, sure. First of all, I needed to make a living. So I was saying yes in some ways because it was practical. But also I think I was in part saying yes because it tapped into that rebel part of me that knew that the way one of the ways you make change is that you're in charge, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you actually have the power or the authority or however do you want something. to put it, right, sure. to do something and to make it different. <laughs> And because otherwise, sometimes you're trying to make change from the outside. You just look like a critic, right? Like it, especially when you're young. And I was young in those days, right? So who's this young whippersnapper telling me how we could do the master classes better or whatever? So I grabbed it and, you know, and I hope made things better. I stayed there for 10 years and I went from from being like the interim chair of the piano department which was the largest department in the school <clears throat> to becoming the dean to eventually becoming the executive director you know so i over you know 10 years i did like i came from like entry level to being the executive director at the school you know that had you know 3000 students it wasn't a small school it was one of the largest schools community music schools in the country and I didn't know anything about leadership. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't know the difference between a mission statement and a vision statement. And a, I didn't know any of that stuff. But I was so energized by it. And I liked it. Like at first it sat alongside of my artistry and my teaching. It was like I was an artist, I performed, I was teaching part of my job. 
and I was running some things, right? And one of the things that I really loved about running things was that there was a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I had never had that in my pursuits because when you're an artist, you're never finished, right? And when you finish a recital, there's a next one coming up or there's new repertoire you need to learn. When you're teaching, it's the same. You know, you're always, you're starting with a student and you're taking them somewhere, but you're never wrapping up. You know, you might notice the stages of improvement. You do, of course. But there was something really satisfying about some of the running of things where you could start something, you could develop it, and you could say, okay, we've, it's in place now, we've done it, whether it's a curriculum or it's a, you know, a, a program, a series, um, a, a, you know, a strategic plan, you know. I, I really, there was something very nice about seeing that kind of uh, narrative, seeing it through. And, and I know, yeah, there's no end. <laughs> so um, there's, there's no end. I do, I do know that. But it's a different kind of work where you can roll out the stages differently than you do as an artist or as a teacher. And it sounds like something around it as well that you were able to, because I can only imagine even making that transition from artist into admin and then rising up and up and up it's still not easy to do because once you're an artist i know this from a lot of artists once you're always an artist that part of you always remains there there's this purity around it but it sounds like as you were rising up in that period of time you recognized the impact you could actually make on other people on supporting other people on making some changes in that space before you went on to do what you're doing with with longi so there's a sacrifice that you thought you had to make to help other people grow, it sounds like. Yeah, I think, it, I think that is true. Um, but I also want to be careful because it was deeply satisfying, you know. <laughs> so good. it was, yeah, no, no, no. Because I, I do think there are people who give up artistry and become leaders, administrators, however you want to. I like leader better than administrator um, as a, as a um, label, um, who really do who do sacrifice, right? And then they, they go back. They, 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 and the whole time they're doing the leadership role, they're saying, I'm going back, right? Eventually, this isn't forever, I'm doing this. And probably that was the case with me at the, in the beginning days too, in the first job or two, you know, that I was thinking, I'm gonna return to teaching and performing. And um, but so that's just to say, yes, I do, I do think that I sacrificed like any of us, right? You can see that path you didn't take, right? What would I be doing had I said no to or not sought out those opportunities? What would I be doing now? But I don't regret it and I don't, yeah, I don't regret it. That's the right word. I don't, I don't look at it and say like, oh, you know, if only or what, what if at all because this is it's been the most amazing life actually to be able to to look at you know this this um area classical music and i anymore i i rarely talk about classical music i've done it already a lot in this 
in this episode here, but it's mo mostly to make the point. I talk more about music. I think it's just music. We don't need to, I like to stay away from the genres, you know, in, in, in my today life, you know, at the school at Longy, I don't talk about classical music. We just talk about music because I don't care if someone sees themselves as a classical music musician or a songwriter, they're welcome to come if we have something to offer them. Um, but yeah, I, I, I never saw it as a, as a big sacrifice. It surprised me it, and it still surprises me that this is the place where I could help my field. You know, I think I'm still surprised by it. And I have to keep myself in check once in a while to say, it's like, is this something I wanted for me? Because I was the rebel who didn't like all the rules of classical music. You know, you have to think about that. Or is this really one of the things the field needs is to break that open and to try to get rid of the exclusivity of it, of the rules, of the haves and the have nots, you know. And that I think really, really resonates with me a lot because um, there's a lot of the, if, if you end up going to conservatory and you end up becoming a very accomplished classical musician, you probably came from quite a lot of privilege. Probably, not always, but often, more often than not, right? You grew up in a family that had the wherewithal and the you know, resources to send you to the best teacher, get you the best instrument, and all of that sort of thing. And, um, and so I, I didn't. It was just sort of the happy circumstance that my family actually really prioritized music. But it was a miracle. It's a miracle that I became a classical musician. I should not have, you know. I didn't, I didn't have the resources that it usually takes to be able to go to the best music festivals in the summer. And, you know, I worked in the summer in high school, this sort of thing. And this is not a woe is me story at all, you know. Um, but it, it, I recognized that conservatories, I was sort of done with conservatories, you know, in my mind, um, because I just thought they were too elite, they were too exclusive, and they were leaving far too many interesting artists behind who, um, for whatever reason, did, had, didn't have the preparation that they was required to get into a conservatory. And so to me, that meant that the conservatories were, there was more of a sameness happening, you know, as people in, in a lot of ways coming from the same class, you know, um, with, of course, plenty of exceptions, but um, never mind um, all the other things we already talked about, whether they had an individual voice, you know, did that matter as much as if they'd had a great theory and music history training in high school, you know? And I think the answer was often no. Like, did they tick all the boxes that conservatories had decided you needed to have accomplished by the time, you know, you were 18 years old? And if you hadn't, the, I mean, the game was, it was over for you, right? And I was pretty interested in, you know, high school students, I taught them, you know, who decided, you know, they wanted to start studying and when they were 16, you know, or when they were 14, you know, I, why not? And why couldn't they actually be a musician? 
you know, that couldn't we have a wider view of the role of the musician in society? So I, I was disinterested in conservatories. I wasn't saying they didn't, you know, they shouldn't exist, you know, and that they should die. You know, I wasn't like, I wasn't, I wasn't angry about it, but I just thought it wasn't interesting. That's probably really, it didn't interest me enough. So the fact that I am a president of a conservatory is another just like, how did that happen? You know, how did I let that happen? <laughs> but then interestingly enough, though, what you've done, even though you are the president of a conservatory, is you've changed the look of what a conservatory looks like and feels like I'm even read about like your application process for example rather than coming in and playing this complicated piece it's no come in and play something that moves you something that you care about and tell us the reason why which is very very different so even in being a president of a conservatory you have done what you just described as the reason why you didn't necessarily like them or you weren't attracted to them in the first place yeah it's it's really true and the Honestly, the only reason I applied for the job um, at Longy, the, the job of president, was because uh, the, so the recruiter, you know, who was trying to help the school find its next president, who was talking with me, you know, and I said to him, I was like, listen, no, and I gave him the spiel about conservatories. He's like, no, 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 I, this school just changed its mission. It just changed its mission to the kind of thing you're talking about. And the, so the mission of the school is preparing musicians to make a difference in the world, which, you know, may not sound uh, revolutionary in 2024, but this was 2006. And so there wasn't, there wasn't another conservatory that had a mission that didn't sound like preparing the best musicians for the best jobs, <laughs> you know? I mean, they didn't say it in those terms, but that's really what it was. We're preparing elite musicians for elite jobs. Um, and this one was saying, preparing musicians to make a difference in the world. And, and I was, so that got under my skin. And, you know, long story short, I applied. And um, because I, the more I thought about it, like the, like my brain just exploded, right? Like it just, I, first of all, I couldn't stop thinking about like, how would you actualize that mission at a conservatory? Like, what does that mean making a difference in the world? And I was like, they actually did it. Like they blew the walls open, make a difference in the world. Is There's nothing exclusionary about that. There's, you know, then suddenly you think like, well, what are the things a musician could actually do in the world like besides the ones we already know very well you know where else could a musician be needed you know and it's one of the ways i talk to students is to say you know don't just uh think about what you want to do just like also like put your head out in the world and say where's their need that music could possibly a musician could contribute or music could contribute because then we're not talking about a limited career path which i think is what's 
I, I think is what's so hard, that kind of constrained path. Are you a performer? Are you a teacher? Are you an orchestral player? We're, we're talking about that doesn't matter because uh, you, you know, go out and, and, and talk to a community and uh, get to know the people in a community and see if, if, is there, you know, what is the music there? Is there music there? Is there any way a mus musician could contribute? I mean, I realize how vague that sounds, but um, I don't think it's vague when you do it in real life. You know, I think as a student, we, we do ask our students to, you know, be, you know, be in the school and be in the building, but also be outside of the building and be in the community. And we even have classes that actually really help them build skills about how do you, how, how can you be a musician in a community? You know, how do you avoid the pitfalls that I think can often happen, which is you have a music you care about as a young artist and you want everyone else to care about it too. And so you take that thing out to a community and they're like, meh, meh not so much. That's not for us. Um, so we have a class, for example, where we teach um, human-centered design um, so that they, how do you use that as a musician? So instead of having it be all about you, you you're, you're going out, you're learning, you know, a line of inquiry to find out, you know, what what are people's experience with music and are they interested in, in having one and can I somehow play a role here um, is, is a completely different approach than starting with the thing you want to proselytize about, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's, of course, it's riskier because people are going to say, no, thank you, you know, to, to that. Whereas when you go out into the community and actually build relationships, right, that's really what's happening is you're building real relationships and you're listening more than you're talking. Um, this, the, the, these are skills that every, everyone needs, every artist needs, you know. And they can then use them however they want, but learning how to to really listen because um, it, it, it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, obviously you think, well, musicians very good at listening, but um, it's different to listen to yourself than listen to the people who are performing music around you versus actually being curious and listening to people in the community. So, yeah, so it, you know, like it allowed, it just, in a lot of ways, my job really is looking at where there are places where a musician could be helpful. You know, what are the possible roles? Um, I also know that some of the roles I'm not going to recognize, right? But our students, our alumni will recognize, right? So it's not going to be my thing to build. It's going to be their thing to build. But how do I prepare them for that future? I, even I can't imagine. And then what skills are they going to need to be able to do that? It's not the skills I needed to do my job. You know, it's the skills they need to do their job in the future, which, which is, you know, it's a different view. I think a lot of education can be in this little bit of a bubble um, 
of I had to do all these things to become who I am. So now you have to, you know, 20 years later, you have to do the same things, right? The, maybe the worst example is, I think, in the training of doctors, at least in this country, right? Like, you go through these residencies where you're working 20 hours a day, and, you know, you ask people, like, why does that help you be a better doctor? And it's a little bit like, no, I had to do it, and that's how I learned, so they do. So I think it's the same in the music world. We can fall into this trap of thinking our students need to have the same experiences that we had to turn out, pop out the other end, you know? And... Uh, my feeling is that I'm all, I always have to be out there a little bit on the hunt or just super curious about places where musicians could work, live, make a job themselves, and then to think, how am, are, is our curriculum preparing them for that day? What are the skills they're going to need? What kinds of experiences should they have while they're in school? So they're not just having to learn after they graduate, right? And, and then that's sometimes when you fall flat on your face and you think, well, I'm not good at this. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right, of your app look for the follow button and click on it and in spotify the follow button should be just below the show's artwork now let's get back into today's episode you're applying the principles of human-centered design even with your approach then because it's people-centered you're trying to make sure are you solving the right problems for your students it's helping them to look at everything is a system and connected so it's not just about right now it's also about afterwards and then what are those like little interventions that you can kind of do? So you are interested. So I was listening. I was like, wait a minute, you're muddling what you are, <laughs> what you're teaching your students without actually saying it. Um, and it's one of the points that you made earlier on around this though, because it sounds very, very different. I would never have thought about applying human centered design to like music, the way they've described it, which is sounds really, really innovative. Have you had any pushback in your world in the way that you have the direction you've taken lunch? Because it sounds, from what I know about classical music and what you're describing, they sound like two completely different worlds. I'm not going to lie. So I'm curious, what, what has been the reception like from your peers and all the other normal way of, ways of working from other um, organizations that are in your world? Yeah, it well, no, you're spot on. I got a ton of pushback. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I, and I, and I live to tell the tale, you know, honestly, the, the, there were days when I really thought I am going to make these changes at Langis and then I'm going to have to leave. That I, as a leader, I'm not going to survive it. Um, and, you know, that is a kind of a life cycle for some leaders, right? They're sort of brought in, they make the changes that the institution wants to have happen. And, you know, all and there's the wake behind that, right? That, you know, they just have to leave, they have to go somewhere else. And, and sometimes people become known for that, right? Like, at some point, I, I, I remember thinking like, okay, so if I don't survive this, um, what will I do next? And 
will this become my thing? Go into a place, you know, uh, shake up the old tropes, try to open it up. I mean, I, I really, I think about it more about being more of a, I don't know, futurist is the right word, but trying to, you know, how do you prepare your students for a future, not for a museum? Um, and so I did wonder, like, is that going to be my thing? Which I didn't, I didn't want to be that kind of a person or a leader, right? Like you have your niche and you do this thing, you know? So somehow I sur I survived it. I mean, I haven't really described the pushback. I don't know if you want to hear it. I think you can imagine it. I want to hear it. I want to hear okay. the reality of it. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> gosh. <laughs> You know, I mean, it was really, it was really painful at the time because um, you, I believed wholeheartedly in my, in these changes. I just, I knew it. And, and I also, you know, your previous guest, Chad M. Sullivan, who you mentioned at the front, you know, you know, he, he came into my life at one point and was super helpful, right? So it's, it's, you know, I guess the uh, putting in a plug for having somebody outside the institution who can help you really live into the things you're seeing and help you see yourself across that abyss, right? Because it, it, there, there are no baby steps in some ways to making change. Um, I talked a little earlier, right, about piloting things. The, you could say those are baby steps, right? Um, but nonetheless, you're, 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 there's going to be a tipping point, right, where you, you have to jump over on the other side of the cliff and say, we're over here now. <laughs> and when you do that, people, people are appalled. <laughs> because um, you just broke all the rules. You just insulted them potentially, right? Because everything they care about and their value system, you've jumped over here. And, and so I got called a lot of names. You know, there were just a ton of articles in the paper because, you know, when someone's against you, they're always gonna spend more energy um, shouting that out to the world than you are fighting them. I know that now, but you know what I mean? Like they're, they're always going to have way more energy for demonizing you or saying you're not enough or you're, you know, you don't get it. Um, there's just going to be, they, they have so many stakes in that other game, right? And what I would say is, you know, on the other side of the cliff, right? Where we were. Um, but part of it is that you, you've potentially insulted people because you've said our values are over here, we think differently. And I just, I really had to learn how to, how to tell my story, how to tell Longi's story, and not to tell it in contrast to theirs, to what was. And that was a place where Chatham was really, really helpful. You know, it was like, um, you know, people say it all the time, lean into it, this, that, and the other. But it, it, for me, it's about storytelling. And it's really, it's, it's not holding yourself up in relief. And, and because when you hold, let's say, we look at Longy compared to another um, school 10 years ago. Um, if I hold us in relief and say, we're this, and this is what we value, inherent in that is some kind of criticism of the other schools. 
And I didn't want to get into the business of that uh, because it, it, that was not where I wanted to spend my energy. And so I also didn't want to do that with my critics. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to have to debate them. I, it wasn't about being right. It, it was just, we're in a different universe over here. We think about things totally differently. Here's how it looks, you know? And, um, and that, you know, sounds really easy, but that took me a while to, to really, to get there and to be able to like stop, you know, I had reporters calling me, you know, and I had to learn to, in part, not answer their question because then I'm telling the story they want to tell, which is like, what's the one that's got the most mud rucking and, you know, all of that kind of stuff in it. I had to really learn to say things like, well, hang on, (laughs) let me give you a little context. Here's how I think about these things, you know, and, um, but not, not turn into a politician, right? Because, That's how I always thought about it when politicians were on TV and they didn't answer the reporter's story. So I had to change my mindset and say like, no, it's, I have a story. It's not the reporter's story. And the reporter has talked to the critics way more than they are going to talk to me, right? That's just how that works. So they've got a full on story developed by the time they call me up to say, what the heck are you doing over at Longy? So that was a skill that I wasn't born with and I didn't really know how to do. But I mean, I will just say, luckily, I had a next door neighbor who worked at the Boston Globe. <laughs> to help you refine what to say and how to say it. Yeah, well, she worked in human resources. And finally, one day I was just, you know, I can't remember if we were at my place or her place or something. And I was just like, I, I, they're exhausting me. They are exhausting me. And see, that's what happens when you get criticized if you aren't careful. You spend too much time in the criticism, you lose your energy. But she's the one who really taught me, um, you know, she talked to, to people and said, oh yeah, Karen just needs to tell the laundry story. She's just gotta get above it, you know. Don't answer those questions, answer other questions, you know reframe change change the change the frame it's all you know how we frame things you know in life personal work is everything and if you can learn to be a person who realizes you have a frame and that you could change your frame right um it's such a gift it's it's somewhere in there that happened for me. It's such, it's such a gift. And I don't know if you can teach that or just tell people that. I don't, I don't know that, but I, I know that happened for me. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think you can teach it, but I do believe you can learn from people like yourself what happens when you didn't, when you step into that reframe. Because um, the story I, I would actually like to hear directly from you around how that reframe helped you to lead to working with um, the the Philharmonic, for example. Like you stepped into that reframe, you stepped into that authenticity, and then that led into this this deal. So that for me is like a great example of what happens. Well, well, 
this is what happens when you do stuff. It, it, it's scary, but <laughs> it can lead to some great things. So what was that? What was that for you? What happened for me was <clears throat> that I had been up until that point, um, naively thinking that I could change people's minds by spending more time with them. <laughs> like whether it's the critics, the people who disagree with you or who they see the direction you're taking and they want to pull in the opposite direction. Right. And I think in the beginning, I, I really was naive enough to think that I needed to spend more time with them, um, debating and con convincing. And it, it, it stole my energy. And somewhere in there, the reframing made me realize that if I spent more time with people who were on the bus with me, that energy came from that. And there was still enough diversity of thinking and experience and whatnot, but there were people who were like, I can see what you're talking about and I see where you're going and I agree, we don't wanna go back. So those are, that's what I would say are like the people who are on the bus with you. And so I just spent, I, that's when I really started to develop more of a team approach and much more of a um, brainstorming approach to you know pa possible paths moving forward. Um, I do think it's important to spend time with people who are like adjacent to the bus. <laughs> you know, I have learned that over time. Like they're worth spending time with because they may be able to find a way to to be together with you even with their difference and actually you need that you need that enough difference right you, you don't want to be in an echo chamber but spending time with people who are trying to push in the opposite direction like i no 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 i don't i just don't spend time there anymore really not much at all i mean obviously if it's a student who totally disagrees with something i do but that's different right you know um so so you asked about the philharmonic so yeah, I mean, I really think if we hadn't jumped across that abyss and said, we are going to be totally different, we're going to be absolutely innovative because we believe in a completely different approach to how music should live in the world. If we hadn't done that, there would have been no conversation with the, with the LA Philharmonic. Um, it, <laughs> you know, it's, and it's an interesting and a funny story, right? Because I had had conversations with the, you know, the, the the symphony right in my own town in Boston, you know, but um, you know sometimes I think sometimes when you're seen as the local, you know, it it's not. Um, I don't. How do I put this? Like I know this happens for actors that you know when we lived in Minneapolis, which is a great theater town, they would go to the auditions in New York and have like a P.O. box address on their resume so people didn't know that they were actually a local Minneapolis actor, right? There's something we, somehow we diminish things that are local. So, so shockingly, the LA Philharmonic paid more attention to Longy in Boston than the Boston Symphony Orchestra did at the time. It's just, and may, you know, maybe we were too convenient. Um, and it's all fine. Like, uh, it, it's fine. It, it turned out great. I, I had become very interested in a music pedagogy, you know, use that term loosely, called El Sistema, which grew up in Venezuela, which was, which was a kind of a social uh, experiment where they created music programs after school 
really for kids that were coming from, for, the, for, for many of them, from abject poverty, right? The parents were working two and three jobs and there was no place for the kids to go. And so they, they got recruited into these music programs that happened after school let out. And, and they practiced all those hours, you know, and got good because they practiced. And, but the idea was that it was a come one, come all. It wasn't about talent. You know, someone deciding the kids had talent and didn't. When I was like, I'm all for that, right? Everybody, everybody welcome. So I was looking at El Sistema to say like, gosh, that really fits Lange and our mission. And well, I don't know if we have a role in that. Um, and so I... I don't want to tell the story too long, but I don't want to leave out important details. So already this El Sistema um, way of thinking was taking hold in the United States. And there were about, I don't know, 40 to 50 different sites around the country. And I honestly, um, I believe in this. Like, you have to really say, okay, there's work that needs to be done, but is it my work to do? Or is it Lange's work to do? So that was the question I was asking. Like. I think this could fit with us, but do we have a role? Is this our work to do? So I basically just got on the phone <laughs> with the people who are running these sites and asked them if I could interview them, you know, speaking of human-centered design, um, and basically did, said, what do you need? You know, you're doing this, what do you need? And they obviously they needed two things, you know, uh, there were two themes money <laughs> and i was like well i know i can't help them with money i'm not gonna we're not gonna become a regranting school that's not our bag and they needed musicians who were trained to teach because el sistema was seen as kind of sexy at the time you know and so there were musicians who were trained as performers who signed up to teach in these el sistema programs because it you know felt good and and, but they had no skills as teachers, right? And so the sites were having a terrible time moving forward because they couldn't keep teachers because the musicians who were teaching hadn't been trained, right? And I was like, okay, <laughs> we could do that. Um, and so the strategic move really was, well, if you, we were gonna train musicians to teach in this El Sistema, um, Pedagogy isn't really the right word, but it's a kind of a philosophy, um, which was quite different than other music training programs, right? From the come one, come all. Um, how were we going to enter that? And, a, and, and someone said to me one day, um, well, if you're going to go do that, you have to go get Gustavo Dudamel, who was the music director of the LA Phil. And Gustavo Dudamel had grown up in El Sistema, and he, you could say, was the poster child of El Sistema, who had, you know, obviously really succeeded and jumped the abyss into the elite world and was the LA Philharmonic. But I also looked at the LA Philharmonic and I said, well, they are already very innovative. Like, this is a very, this is also, it's an orchestra that doesn't live by the rules of others. You know, they play a lot of new music and they just, you know, they juxtapose things differently. And, and um, so I went out to LA and got a meeting with Deborah Borda, who was the president of the LA Phil. I had met her before, so that helps, right? I actually had a dinner with her. We had some mutual friends. So um, not to make it sound like I just walked in the door totally cold. Um, that's the dinners you say yes to, <laughs> right? <laughs> that later on you're like, that was good, 
you know, that was good. So I pitched her. I said, you know, you, they had already started an El Sistema program for kids in L.A. And so they were already in that world. They had Gustavo Dudamel. I said, here's what I want to do. I want to start a degree program that teaches musicians to teach in this different way, in this open doesn't matter what your past experience is, everybody welcome approach. And I know the field needs it, they've told me. We could do that together. You could be the only orchestra in the world that has a degree program attached to it. That was my pitch. And she, you know, I could say, and it worked. But she was open and intrigued and actually liked the idea that it was this small conservatory in Boston all the way across the country, partnering with the LA Phil, you know, that again, it was like what, there was a lot that differentiated this partnership because it was clearly not a partnership of convenience, right? It's not because you're next door. We're being super intentional about this and we had of course, all these shared values, which I think is something I haven't said yet, right? But it's hard to get work done in partnerships if you don't share enough values. You don't have to be, and you'll, you'll never be identical, but there's got to be some core. First of all, the institutions have to be aware enough of what, their value, what they do value and what they don't value, right? I think there's a certain amount of putting values in a statement, but do you actually live out those values? Do the values actually help you make decisions? Um, I could, we could talk a long time about values probably, right? But we shared a lot of values with the LA Phil. So I should backtrack and say, I don't think I would have gone there just because Gustavo Dudamel was there and because they were sort of innovative. They were very innovative. They had started an El Sistema program and were pouring a lot of resources into it. So I could see that their values they were in the community in a real way, not in a what I would call a drive-by way, you know? They were immersed, they were doing the real work, not just the, the surface stuff that were going deep, yeah, sounds like. Yeah, they were doing the real work. Um, they, they weren't inviting people into their universe, they were going out into the people's universe, right? And they were figuring out how to be there. They weren't telling, you know, that universe, the neighborhood, how it was going to be. So that meant a lot to me. And that's how that got started. And it was heady days, you know, heady days, amazing days, busy, um, wonderful. And it, I will say it was a vote of confidence for cha the changes Longi was making. And so I'm also grateful for that, right? Because I had, we had plenty of critics who were up on their own pedestal, uh, you know, looking down at us. And then we had the LA Phil partnering with us. That turned some heads. I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I appreciated it, right? And, um, yeah, that was, it was super helpful, super helpful. I will never forget it. I will never forget that Deborah Bordas said yes. And that LA Phil 
embraced Longy. They saw, they saw what we were doing. They got it. They got us, right? They got us. There's nothing better than getting that validation from someone else when all you've got is criticism so far. Even though you know you're on the right track and you're doing the right thing, it still feels good just to get someone else to be like, I got you, I see you, we're aligned, let's do this together. It just feels, you're not alone anymore. It feels great. <laughs> it feels, no, it really, like, it. it's not what motivates you on a daily basis, but when it comes, you're like, okay, that's like really, that feels so nice. With everything else you've, you've done at Lungy, all the changes you've made, the the openness, utilizing century music as like this social change that can change the world and, and shape the world. What would you want to do next? Because it sounds like you've done a lot already. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things we're working on now um, that, so it's not quite a next, we're in it, but it's not, you know, it's still in its incubation sort of uh, situation. Um, it really does have to see where there's need in the world. Uh, it's looking for where there's need, where a musician could be. It really has to do with um, music and our health and our well-being and how music can really impact people physically, never mind spiritually, right? But so, so we're really looking at a whole, we have a whole chapter ahead of us that we call music as a healing art, which is really about using music as therapy, therapeutic music. So uh, I, think, I think this is, I think it could be huge. <laughs> you know, I think, I really believe in it and I really see where things could go with it. Um, but if you, so for example, if you think about let's just say the healthcare system. And when you're in the healthcare system, the kind of stress that that can actually bring to you or being sick, the stress around being sick. So what's an example? You have cancer and you are going in for chemotherapy. So it turns out that for plenty of patients, if you could have a live musician there with you, when you're having your session, you know, receiving this poison into your body, who is trained and understands not how to play the music they care about, right? <laughs> Here's a Bach fugue. <laughs> um, but actually understands how to create an atmosphere using sound that could impact you as a patient. And there's research on it and it works. Um, and so that's, that's an area where I'm, I'm super, that's a really next big chapter for Lanji, I think, is therapeutic music and training more and more musicians. But also, at some point, I've really got to start to advocate for, um, you know, making sure that the healthcare system wants this, you know, and will accept it. And there are places, so we're already working with, with, hospitals and healthcare facilities. We're working in places like um, assisted living. I don't know if that's something you have in the UK, but it's, it's, it's sort of you're no longer living independently as you get older. Um, you're yeah, living care in a kind facility. of yeah. care facility, retirement facility, um, because I feel like um, 
Yeah, what music can actually do to help, for example, lower people's stress level, music can actually bring down people's blood pressure. It can lower your, you know, slow down your breathing rate and your pulse. And we have research on that. But you have to know what you're doing as a musician. I mean, it's, it's always like you can have this aspiration to help someone with your music, but you need skills to also be able to be in the room with someone who's sick. So, but like to give you an example, that is the one I think always works. Um, you know, you think about when you're feeling really stressed and, and so you think, well, how could music help someone who's stressed? You might naturally think like, well, calming music, slower pace, maybe soft, right? That's before I knew anything about this, that's what I thought. But it's a little bit akin to when, some, when you're stressed and somebody says, just relax. How does that help you? It doesn't usually help you, right? In fact, it sometimes can make you feel worse. So with music, with therapeutic music, what you do is if you're working with someone who's really stressed, um, you, you, you look at where they're breathing. You can even feel their pulse. But the breathing is where you can see it. How quickly are they breathing? And you play music that matches that rhythm. You match them. And then over time, you bring it down. Slowly, you know. You don't go from where they are to slow music. You gradually decrease the tempo. And they will stay in sync. They will, they will stay with you as a musician. You're in part, you're having that kind of an influence and it's because you're in proximity with them, in part, right? And it's live music, it's not recorded necessarily, it's, it's part of the power of it. I mean, it's, it's, there's a, there's a, you know, we always say music is powerful, but it's true. It's really true. So this is one of the things I see next that we, you know, we're, we're developing a curriculum to train the performer musician or the teacher musician, uh, the amateur musician, to be able to use their music in this way. Because I think a lot of musicians who never went to music school could be very capable in this way. And that makes me really excited, right? Because if you think about all of the people in the world who are stressed, if we just look at it from that point of view, who could be helped by therapeutic music, never mind people who are really sick, or people who've been forgotten, right, who are living in a nursing home, and nobody comes to visit anymore, and they're isolated. You know, being able to spend time every week with a musician at their bedside, who is finding out about who they are, and how they're feeling, and, and is creating music just for them, Incredible, right? Like I want that. Like when I'm, I want that. right? I want that. I see. I, I, who wouldn't want that? So then I also think about these. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in the US we have these big companies that run these retirement communities, and you start before you really need it, right? Like, and you move into a sort of freestanding condo or something, and then as you get older and you need more help. Right there's progressive um, healthcare for you right there in the facility, but when you first start, you're healthy and you're vibrant, and they create all these programs for people who are near retirement or have retired, right? Who don't want to care for a home anymore. 
musicians are needed there, right? You could, they could hire musicians full time who could spend part of their work week would be playing, performing, right? Creating concert series. Part of it could be teaching, you know, amateur classes, piano class, music appreciation class, uh, you know, learn to play the ukulele class. You, you know, I don't, I'm making it up, but it's like, what would that community want? And part of their, the musician's work, we could be doing therapeutic music for people who really need it. Um, and so that's like, I, I, I see that as like one of the places where there's need is how do we, how do we treat people near the ends of their life? And what's the role that music could play in that? That's a huge need in this world. Honestly, as I'm listening to you talk right now, I'm, I'm like, I can see so many spaces where this could make a fundamental shift to the lives of individuals. Because even when people are struggling and then suffering in those kind of spaces, when they're in hospitals and things like that, we all know how when you play set music that appeal to them, just stuff they know. It resonates even those in comas like you've seen the the mris and the neuroscience and stuff around that let alone tailoring a live music to the beat and the rhythm and the pulse of of someone and how that can just have so much healing impact on them because we even know that when we've explored like even sometimes when people are sick and some of the, the physical conditions that manifest are all based on mental and emotional needs that have just manifested in a physical way and music is a way of being able to actually remove some of those mental and emotional struggles that people necessarily have to allow them to express them properly, which can actually lead to some of the physical symptoms going away. And therefore, the medical system is not overwhelmed. So there's so many different ways that this can actually be utilized that, as you were talking, I was like, okay, I am I'm intrigued. I, I want to I hear more and learn more about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's exactly it. You, you get it. You, nail, you nailed it. Um, it like it, it it has this power to shift energy and you know to to help settle people down to actually change their vital signs right um, we we during the pandemic of course we couldn't be out bedside with our mu musicians who were learning how to do this obviously so we we ended up though interviewing you know patients and residents and then creating playlists for them and it was about the kind of music they liked and what they listened to but also it would be like here's a playlist to listen to if you're feeling anxious that kind of thing right and again it didn't start with relaxing music um but it there is something about the individual um that this happens with two individuals that I think is very meaningful. I, it's not to say it can't happen with a group either, though. Like, um, for example, you, can you imagine, you know, it's a little bit out there, but like there's a school board that's having trouble getting along, right? Or the neighborhood association, you know, the meeting always breaks out and, you know, like what could it be like to actually, you know, say we're going to start a little differently this week and we're going to actually start with uh therapeutic music helping us to set the atmosphere. I don't know, maybe that's too flaky, but I, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like there could be other ways that it could 
it could actually work for groups, potentially. There's always a will. There's always a way, I guess. But there's a, a, I call it the selfish nature of me that says, actually, there's something around the connection you have with one-to-one that's very, very different to groups. Because that personalized feeling of just being in the presence of someone else and they're connecting and tuning in with you when you're going through certain things can have a bigger impact than having a group. Groups do work and they have their space and I'm sure you will figure out a way of making that work. But there's something around that individual piece that I actually think is really special. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think I'm, I'm sort of trying it out. Like, is there a way for it to be in, in, in a group? Because you, you always run into, you know, with an idea, one-to-one, of course, is always the most expensive way to and and somewhere along the line I I will run into somebody who says if you can figure out how to do this more in a group. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm sure you I'm not sure you will. I I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm actually not I'm not sure because, you know, like I do like that is in part the power of music lessons often is that it's one to one. And I have seen that for so many decades of my own career that, you know, when you're teaching a child you develop this relationship, you know, they get to develop a relationship with an adult who's not their parent, you know, who is saying you can do this, you know, but that one-to-one, that the, whatever you want to call it, the atmosphere of a one-to-one um, is really special and can't be replaced. But then with the advancing technology, for example, where, I mean, just recently you've had... Um, ways where people are creating this new 3D environment where you're working from home. But when I put on my goggles and I say it's most comfortable, I can see my colleague. So it feels like an office setting, even though I'm just sat in my in my chair at home. So there are things happening and the technology happening is changing, it's ever evolving, that you never know. You'd be like, actually, we could trial this out. And to your point, a lot of things are going to be pilots. It's going to be to see what's available, what can we do, how can we test it out. That's part of the fun of it, just trying to figure that bit out because that keeps you excited. It's like, actually, yeah, it's, this is a new radical way, but the first step is the one-to-one. And then you go to that next level afterwards. I like that. I really like that because that is where it gets also very exciting, right? Because then you can actually imagine a different kind of reach. Mm. You know, anyone anywhere in the world is... Right? (laughs) It it's it just feels different than where can I get myself (laughs) in front of the person. Yeah, so that's that's, you know, one of the next things and it's not the only next thing, but it is, you know, yeah, my job, right? Looking for places where musicians can be helpful. Trying to see you know, is that a path? Is it a career? Is it a job? Is it a avocation? And how do we prepare musicians to be able to play that role? That's that's my kind of my current job. You know, it's great. Always looking. You know, more looking in place unexpected places. I would say has helped me. You know, stay away from the usual suspects. Oh, now we've come right to the end of. This interview, which I thoroughly enjoyed. <laughs> like it's been, Same. It's been super fascinating. So thank you for that. My last question to you would be, 
How do you define leadership? I've n- I don't think I've ever defined it. <laughs> so, um, and and I I'm tempted to say like you see it you know it when you see it you know but I kind of hate that too because um, what does that mean that's so vague. Um, I think I define it. I define it for myself, and so I I feel like there's no three quick bullet points that I can give you. Um, but I think I think leaders leaders are striving for something. I think they're striving for either better or change. And I think most leaders are um, are really, you know, care about the relationships around them and are striving towards something together <laughs> instead of I don't, I don't see that. I don't look at that kind of leadership that's way out front and trying to pull people along, if that makes any sense. So I think, I think I'm drawn to leaders who work in a team and who value diversity of opinion and experience. Bring that into the, into the leadership. You know, I always say a good idea can come from anywhere, and I really believe it. Um, and the way that I feel like I work when I'm at my best is I can't even remember who had the idea. Was it my idea? Was it their idea? That that sort of falls away. That's maybe that's a different way of being a leader, but that's that's how I define it. I like it very much, and I like how. Just listening to your your journey and how that rebel streak has kind of stayed with you because that's been it's been needed and necessary to be able to shake up a world in the way that you have the world that you exist in like you've you've had to do that and like you said listen to some of that how tough it was and the criticism and stuff that you faced but yet the impact you've been able to have and now other people now see what you are and years later everyone kind of came and was like yeah you're right so (laughs) kind of validated you but someone who always has to be that person to go first and it had to be someone who was already thinking differently which you were so you had to step into a role like this and do what you've been doing and you've done it well and i've learned so much just listening to your to your journey and your approach um that i really appreciate and i'm i'm looking forward to see like not just what you shared is coming next, but even more things coming out of of you and of Longji and and other other collaborations in different spaces as you utilize music to change the world, which is which is what you're doing right now. So thank you very much. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. You ask great questions and you also leave the space to be able to sprawl a bit because I think answers, you know, are not always compact and um i really really appreciate that yeah and i i look forward to what comes next too you know i've actually been in this job for 16 years and i don't think i ever thought i would stay that long 
And um, it's not that I moved around a lot in my career, but, you know, one one does, you know, stay a certain amount of time. And and there is even this expectation, right, as the head of an organization, you know, after a certain amount of time, you should leave and let someone new come in. Um, So, of course, it's something I think about, but um, there is really something about staying in one place and going deeper that I have learned from this chapter that I that I think it gives you the time to reflect to notice things to notice things over time which I think is sometimes underappreciated in this world you know people do their thing and they move on to the next place and do their thing and um, there there is there's something about staying in one place and continuing to to learn that feels great it takes all those learnings and years of knowledge and experience and you keep on applying it to make a difference and to your point because it's not just the same old same old you are constantly iterating and experimenting and piloting and doing new things it feels it feels new yeah that's right that's right i think if you got to a point where you were just maintaining things that would be time to leave right um because the organization always needs someone who's helping it move forward it has been an absolute pleasure. Same Thank you here. very much, Karen. Thank you so much. Let's stay in touch. We definitely will. This is Everyday Leadership. Speak to you next time. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out.